This is Shelter in Place, a podcast about coming together in a world that pulls us apart. From Oakland, California to Hamilton, Massachusetts, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. For the past couple of weeks, our family has been packing up our lives, getting ready to leave Massachusetts, this place that has offered us some reprieve while we tried to rebuild a life blown apart by the pandemic. If you've been following season two, then you already know that story, what we've been calling Pandemic Odyssey, a journey that took us from California to Massachusetts, from the old life to the new one. It's a journey we're very much still on, and it's been a gift to have you travel with us. In a couple of days, we're making our way back to our Ithaca, to Oakland. But the route we're taking is by no means a direct one. We've got some stops along the way that we need to make and some people that we want to see. While we're traveling, we're releasing some of our favorite episodes from our archives, and also some conversations that you've never heard before. Today is one of those. Since our family is very much at sea during this time, I thought it was only fitting that I share with you an episode that was recorded in early October, just a few days after our family arrived in Massachusetts. It's a conversation with Justin McRoberts on his podcast, At Sea. Justin is a speaker, author, musician, curator, and just generally a really enjoyable person to talk to. I feature Justin in one of our episodes in season two, What You Make of It. And this week is a big week for him because his new book just came out. If you enjoy this conversation, I hope you'll check out Justin's new book, It Is What You Make of It, and also his podcast, At Sea. I'll include links to both of those things in our show notes for today. Here's Justin. The ethos and heart of my next book is that just about nothing is what it is. Instead, as the title of the book would have it, it is what you make of it. And I realized that shifting from it is what it is to it is what you make of it, it's a long process and can be a bit daunting. More so when the is we have to work with, our circumstances and opportunities, is really sideways or even broken. When things go wrong, or the unexpected takes over, it can feel like the most natural thing to do is to navigate to, grab hold of, and cling to something solid and sure. What if, on the other hand, on occasion at least, I read the lack of solid ground or the absence of a sure thing as an invitation into adventure? That's what I find inspiring and informative about Laura Joyce Davis and her work, that While I don't blame a soul for looking for sure things and more solid ground during the COVID era, she and her family took this as an opportunity to dive headlong into the unknown and see what they can make of the pieces they found there. She is a writer, and she is the host of the Shelter in Place podcast. She is also my guest on this episode of the Etsy podcast. Check it out. Um, So where are you talking to me from right now? I am in our new little apartment where, uh, I can't remember, I don't think this was set up when we talked last, but um, we are now relocated in the seminary, like Marriott Student Housing, I think is where we are, at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, So, which is where Nate's dad works. And Nate is your husband. Nate is my husband, yes. And normally this would not be an option, but because of COVID, they have all these empty apartments. 
how do you end up where you are right now geographically, physically? Like, how'd you get there? My husband's from the Boston area and I'm from Minneapolis originally, but we've been in Oakland for 16 years. So we have a house there that's very much home. We had no plans of leaving Oakland really at all. We feel like it really suits us. We have an amazing community there that we're missing very much right now. But with the pandemic, a lot of that community kind of fell away, didn't disappear, but there were just a lot fewer relationships that were in our life on a daily basis, and especially our support structures. We were hanging in there for the first, I would say, six months of the pandemic. But very early on, my husband lost his job, hmm. like two weeks into the into shelter in place, I think. And that happened to coincide with me starting this podcast, which is called Shelter in Place. Yeah. And the idea for the podcast came to me March 16th. March 17th was episode one. And I thought, this will be great. I'll do a daily podcast six days a week. I'll do it for three weeks. I'm a writer by trade, so it was a great little writing project for me to do. This would be a great way for me to mark this moment in history for myself. Yeah. And of course, that three-week project turned into four months later, a hundred episodes later, yep. a full-blown job. And at some point, we kind of realized the podcast was gaining momentum and it felt like, wait, this isn't just a creative project. We were sort of rewriting our life as I was writing these episodes yeah. and it was daily. So it was happening in real time. And so at some point my husband was not finding another job quickly and decided he really believed in this work. And so he was going to come work on it with me. And fast forward to August, we'd been doing this work together for a few months at that point. And I should mention, we have three small children. Yes. So our kids are eight, six, and three. So it's no small uh, thing to be to be deciding in light no. of anything, we're gonna reinvent. Exactly. I mean, I think there would probably be a lot of people who would just say, that's crazy. That's not yeah. wise. It's, Did it feel crazy? Because, uh, I mean, we haven't really gotten to the point where things get totally bananas, but at the point in which exactly. it happens, right? Like people, people lose their jobs, yeah. that happens. But like you did something different with it. So he had lost his job, was looking for something. You had started this project. And I should say, I never, ever would have started that project if COVID-19 had not happened. If you had told me, oh, you're going to do a daily podcast and you'll do 100 episodes in a row, not even five days a week, six days a week, I would have just been like, that sounds terrible. I will never do anything like that. So it very much was a project of the moment. But to answer your question, it was crazy and we knew it was crazy. But at the same time, I think going into the pandemic, even before Nate lost his job, even before COVID-19, life just felt barely sustainable. Hmm. We were not even the people who had the packed schedule all the time. And yet, with three small kids, we rarely would have an evening where something wasn't going on or a weekend that was free. And I think there was just this frenetic pace that on the one hand, we loved our life in Oakland and we were involved in our neighborhood and our school and our church. We had all these deep relationships. And on the other hand, it just felt like we were gonna break down at any moment. So I think we were sort of primed to make a big change. This is like a big tangent, but That's it's fine. a relevant one. Absolutely. Going into the pandemic for about a year, we had been actively planning a sabbatical year. That's kind of a story in and of itself. But the short version is we were going to be in Mexico starting in July. 
I was going to be doing actually another podcast project that never ended up happening, but it was all about U.S.-Mexico immigration. And I'd done these interviews and I had applied for a Fulbright and we had done all of these things to prepare for that. And we're very, very close to being ready to go when COVID-19 happened. So in many ways, I think we were already shifting gears like crazy from day one of the pandemic. And by the time we got to the point where Nate decided to work on this with me and we decided to kind of go all in on the podcast, we had already been letting things go over and over and over again for months and getting more and more used to the idea that everything we thought we could count on, we actually couldn't. And we needed to maybe just as much as possible start from scratch. So there are a couple of things I want to, before we go, go deeper, you keep dropping these incredible gems. I want to pick up on a couple of them. And <laughs> Sorry, one, I know no, that no, 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 it's, it's beautiful. You, you, you said, uh, you're like, hey, you know, this is a tangent. I was like, yeah, but your freaking life for the last several months has been a tangent. <laughs> this is what I love about what you've been up to is someone could look at what's going on in your life and say, this is peripheral. That's neat. But let yeah. us know when you're done with it. But right. you're saying, no, 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 we are fully here. We're fully present yeah. in this thing. And even part of your own psychology wants to call this tangential, but it's not. This is actually your yeah. life, the way you're living it right now. Yeah, it's true. That's absolutely right. After that very relevant, not tangent, <laughs> I was about <laughs> to say. Our kids, they were distance learning. Yep. And we had sort of been limping along with trying to work, trying to be there for our kids, trying to not completely neglect them, getting help where we could, but mostly not having help. And we're part of the Oakland public school system and Oakland Unified announced in July that they would not be going back to school in person. And we all went through this kind of scramble of trying to figure out how the heck are we going to survive this year? Because when you have two working parents, it's not an option to just expect that your kids will be fine without you, especially when they're that young. And yet we needed to work. You know, here we are essentially, we have a startup with this podcast. That's, you know, for lack of a better word, that's what it is. We were pitching to places. We were trying to get support from donors and working like mad to make it sustainable. And at the same time, our kids, they basically needed somebody full time. People had different availability to help out with something like a co-op, different risk tolerances. And so in the end, there was really only one other family that said, yeah, okay, we'll pair up with you guys. So that's what we did. We sent our three-year-old back to preschool at that point because it felt totally impossible to have a three-year-old around with these other two kids trying to be, you know, quiet on Zoom calls. And for a week and a half, we were like, well, this isn't ideal, but, you know, maybe it's good enough. And we were, you know, of course, nervous financially about spending all this money on childcare, but it just felt like, well, this is just what we have to do. Mm-hmm. And then, as any California person will know, that second week of school, I think it was like August 19th, we woke up to smoky skies. Yep. That was our first indication that the wildfires had come. It was also a heat wave, so it was like 100 degrees. You know, the kids had been in the backyard, but now they had to be indoors. Our house is not a big house. It's a little, you know, two-bedroom house, and we don't have air conditioning. So it's very quickly gone from being like, well, this situation isn't ideal, but it's workable, to, wow, this is pretty miserable for everybody. And it's only mid-August, 
if the last four years are any indication at all, the wildfires will probably not end until late October or November, basically until it rains. I mean, that that is how it's been the last four years. Yep. So that night, we actually, for the very first time, had that conversation of, should we go? Should we be somewhere else for a while? Something that we didn't want to do, but felt like we were idiots if we didn't at least have that conversation. Yeah. The shift here, you do it sort of smoothly and it's semi-unconscious, but it's like the decision you make to say your circumstances are a matter of will. It's a thing you decide. Like we could stay. You even said like, it's not like there weren't options on the table. There were. Right. You didn't like them. The way we often communicate these things is like, there just weren't any options. It's like, no, no, no. There were options. You're not choosing them. And to embrace that is actually part of what allows you to say, here's this thing, here's this adventure we're going to set out on that resets our existence entirely. And it's a choice we get to make that there wasn't going to be like some adventure fairy who's going to like drop off the adventure on your doorstep. (laughs) You know what I mean? There's no like Uber adventure app. Yeah. You just freaking choose it. You make a decision. It's a matter of will. And by sheer force of will, you looked around and said, we don't like the options in front of us. We're going to grab this existential machete and start cutting our way through the forest. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And I think it's worth noting that when we were having that conversation, Wednesday night, first day of the fires, we started talking about it. We had this big whiteboard in our living room. We were making lists of reasons to stay, lists of reasons to go. And even though it was very clear quickly that there were a lot more reasons to go at this point, which by the way, had never been true in 16 years of living in Oakland. I mean, we had occasionally made those lists before for other reasons and never did we feel like, oh yeah, we should think about going. Mm -hmm. But even then we really did not want to go. We talked a lot about it. We did what we do a lot of and we obsessed about our list. We kept (laughs) revisiting it for 48 hours. And I think our prayer was, man, if we're supposed to do this, Like, God, would you just make this super clear to us? Because we don't want to go, but we will if that's what we need to do. That was Wednesday. We started the conversations. By Saturday, Nate finally called his parents, which if we were going to go anywhere, it would be near his family, mostly because his mom is the only one of the grandparents who has any sort of capacity to help out with our kids. You know, we tried to be upfront about, like, this would be five days a week. This is a lot to ask. And she said yes. Within minutes of Nate getting off the phone, we got an email from our preschool saying that they were shutting down for two weeks because one of the teachers had COVID-19. Oh my gosh. And then, of course, our distance learning pod immediately dissolved because they didn't want to risk exposure to our three-year-old in case she you know, had been exposed to COVID. And it just felt like the thing that we needed to kind of tip the scales. And then three days later, some friends of ours said they could rent our house. So it happened incredibly fast. And two weeks after that first conversation, we were driving away from Oakland and setting across the country. So that is how we came to be here now. (laughs) So you said a thing a minute ago, you used the word success. How are you applying that word to your life now? The metrics with regards to success for a lot of us have sort of fallen away. Like this is what success used to be. These kinds of numbers, this kind of longevity. How are you marking success? And that doesn't have to just be about the podcast, but like I'd love love for you to at least start there. You set out, you're like, hey, I'm doing this project. I'm gonna do this podcast daily, potentially podcast, which isn't daily now. You can talk about making that decision Mm -hmm. later on. And then COVID-19 fires, the world comes after you and squeezes you out of the life you're trying to live. 
you make this decision to like revamp and not just kind of white knuckle it and fight through, which let's just be honest, most people are trying to do right now. Most folks are trying to like just hold on really tight to yeah. what they have, hoping to God it either comes back or lasts, which it probably won't yeah. anyways. Instead of doing that, you make the decision to let go, okay, bye, and reinvent, along with letting go of those things like our metrics, your metrics for like, what does successful parenting look like? What does a successful career look like? Do you feel like you're successful with a podcast? And if so, how? Like, what does that look like? I think being in my 40s, I view this so differently than I did mm. even five years ago. Hmm. But I've spent most of my life as a fiction writer. That was my training. I got my MFA in fiction. That's why we actually moved to Oakland in the first place back in 2004. And so I've been in that world for a long time. It's pretty intense. I mean, you, you know, it's incredibly cutthroat. There are so many good people that you're up against all the time. Even getting an agent is tough. And then yeah. getting a book deal, even once you have an agent, can be tough. Yes. And I do literary fiction, which is just like, the worst, right? I mean, I, I love literary fiction, but it's the, the worst, worst to get into because there just aren't many spots at the table these uh, days, yes, you know, because of what's happened with publishing. And we now have fewer books being published, especially in literary fiction. I have short stories published. I have essays published. I've even won some big awards that I could objectively say, okay, I, I was a Fulbright scholar in creative writing. Poets and Writers Magazine has a big award called the California Exchange Award. And it's this crazy award where they fly you to New York for a week and introduce you to all of these very influential people in the publishing world. You know, people like the New Yorker editor. I got to sit in her office and have a meeting with her. And yet I did not feel like a success most of the time why because i didn't have a book deal you know and oh, that wow. was the thing right that was the thing i was all and i had novels that i got really close with um you know agents who would tell me they believed in the work but they weren't the right one for it you know i have right. just dozens of these letters over the years and in some ways i'm glad that i didn't get a book deal way back then because i think i've become a much much better writer in that time and i do think the fiction i'm writing now is much better than what i wrote 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And I still have hope that that'll happen. But I think it always felt a little bit lonely to be a fiction writer. And, yes. you know, fiction will always be my first love. I'm never going to stop writing it. But even when I had short stories published or awards that I had won, most of the people in my life had never read anything I'd written. And yeah. I get it, right? You know, we're all busy. We all had different things we like to read. You can't keep up with everything. But there was something about pouring my heart and soul into this work and just having it completely not connect to anything else in my life. Something I didn't expect with the podcast, but that I've loved is that it has given me a way to put my writing out there in a more public way. Mm. And, you know, I don't have to get a book deal before it can happen. I can nope. just, you know, edit my audio and push publish and it's out there. There's a sense of completion. It's like you finish yes. that episode and you yeah. push publish and that's it. And then you're on to the next one. And you well, know how beautiful versus, that is. This yeah. is why I was asking you about your metrics for success is because you were just saying like, I didn't have the book deal. It's like, yeah, but that's crazy sauce. You could write something right now, push it to Facebook and yeah. have a wider audience than 90% of the books that have ever been published will ever see. Because what's the average book sell like 100 copies or something like that? Sure. The average album when we were still making CDs sold less than 200 copies. Whereas nowadays, like you can be a 17 year old, 16 year old, 14 year old kid, put together a song, 
upload it to SoundCloud and have 2,000 people listen to it before the end of the day. Like, shift your metric. What is success? I don't know. What do you want it to be? You get to decide what success is for your life and for your career. I love that that's the ethos and what you've been up to. With the podcast, what are some things you know now about relationships and about the human desire and need for relationships that you didn't know before you started this? I've thought a lot about this, and I think being a fiction writer has in some ways set me up really well for podcasting because in literary fiction, you're always thinking about story. You're always thinking about characters. Mm -hmm. You're always thinking about what creates tension and what resolves tension and what's what makes for an interesting read you know how do you pull people along from one page to the next and not just have it be a page turner but have real substance that desire to portray complex nuanced characters in fiction it's the same thing I bring to my interview conversations And, and I think also kindness I had a wonderful teacher Yu and Lee she said this thing that I'll always remember she said you need to treat characters with kindness And I have always tried to do that. I really want to show people in the beauty of their full humanity. And so I try to approach my interviews with just a lot of kindness, the same way that I would my characters. My career started with music, with rock and roll. So I was a single guy living with a few other single guys in this guy's house named Frank. Frank, he ran a record label. I would write songs just to process my life. It was a way for me to like have some kind of emotional control over what was going on in my own head. But I was making my money doing you know, youth work and teaching, you know, raking in mad sums of cash with, you know, working with kids. <laughs> they make great money. Killing it. <laughs> public education. And Frank oh. came to me one night and he's like, hey, have you, I mean, you, know, have you ever thought about playing music like, for a living? And I said, no, you know, the, you think the songs are good. And he says, no, the songs aren't good, but I like you. And I was like, okay, what? <laughs> And then little months later, I'm in Nashville, Tennessee at this showcase for artists and Frank gets on a stage in front of like 200 industry persons. And he says, this is Justin McRoberts. And you know, you've, you've seen some of these things, you know, like you go to these showcases and like the, whether it's the label head or the, you know, or, or the publisher, the like, here's our new, the, the new book and it's going to change everything and nothing will be the right. same, Right. And everyone's doing that, right? This is this is so-and-so, and they're great, and they're fantastic, and they're better than fantastic. They're going to rearrange what you think about the word fantastic. They're going to be so great that the word great won't work anymore, and that kind of thing. And Frank gets <laughs> up and he says, this is Justin McRoberts, and he's the artist we'll be focusing on this year. And I'll be honest, he's not that great right now. <laughs> it was like how he started the thing off. And I'm standing behind him holding my guitar. Nice. You're and, like, oh, confidence booster. Awesome. He was great. Thanks. He did, you know, I, I kind of expected you know, things like this for Frank. But then he said... I expect that most of the bands that you would have seen this morning probably won't be playing music two to three years from now. I think Justin mm-hmm. will be making music 15 years from now, and I think it'll be great, so I'm making a long-term investment. You can either make it with me or not, and then walked off the stage. Fantastic. Right? And, I mean, it was yeah. one of those things where it's like, uh, in, in the moment, it's kind of like a little bit deflating, but it, ju- it, it just reset my expectations so that when things yeah. went well, it was like, great, things are great now. Mm-hmm. And, but it wasn't everything. And then when things did not go well, I was like, okay, this sucks, but this isn't everything. What does your life and work look like 15 years from now? What I'm wondering though is does the future even hold place in your heart, your mind right now? Like how much space does 15 years from now even take up for you in your soul? You know, I think in my 20s, especially, I was that person who had 
the 10-year plan and the five-year plan and the 20-year plan. And I think at some point I had to put them aside because life was not rolling out the way that I had planned. Part of that was realizing that I was planning things that were completely out of my control in most cases. But I think at this point, not that I don't think about the future at all. I definitely do. But I think I care a lot more about relationships. And that doesn't mean that, I mean, I'm not excluding that from my work. I think one of my great areas of growth has been realizing I'm never going to be that mom who is satisfied just being with my kids. And that's not a diss on them. It's just, you know, I think some people have that gift. And then I think others of us, we need something more to sustain us in the day to day. And I have found, you know, whether it's writing fiction or doing a podcast or something else, I found my art to be that thing. And so learning how to bring those two things together has been incredibly important, not just for me as an artist, but for me as a mom, because Mm -hmm. I don't want to neglect my kids and I want them to know that they are precious to me. But also, to be quite frank, if, if I stop writing and all I'm doing is being a parent, I'm pretty depressed pretty quickly. I spent a handful of years fighting that and feeling really guilty about that because I could look around and I could see stay-at-home mom friends that I knew who were just killing it and they you know, were so awesome with their kids and so fulfilled. And I just have had to realize like that is not who I am and that's okay. You know, There are different kinds of parents and it doesn't mean that I'm a bad parent, but I do need to figure out how can I incorporate my art into my parenting and vice versa. And I think the more I've learned to integrate those two things, you know, kind of the better it's been for everybody. And so I think when I think about 15 years from now, honestly, my greatest hope is that whether it's a podcast or writing books or something else, that I'm still doing this, but that more than that even, that I have a great relationship with my kids. I mean, my kids will be teenagers by then. Lord willing, maybe one or two of them will have left the house. Although these days, who knows? Thinking about how can I live my life now Mm. to set us up for that to be true in the future. And Mm. I am the first person to say I fail at this almost every day. Yeah, same. Maybe every day. It is the hardest, (laughs) hardest creative challenge of my life is to figure out how to just be the parent that I want to be to them. And also to figure out, like, how can I be somebody who is content? and who Mm. isn't always feeling discouraged by things not going quite the way that I want them to. That's really good. Well, thank you so much for your time. A huge fan of the journey, the process, the podcast. This, you know, series of interviews is entirely about making what we can from what we have on hand. And the witness you are bearing to those who are paying attention to you is, uh, I think it's enriching, I think it's challenging. Uh, and I think you do it in a really um, helpful posture that you don't, and I think you'll take this as a compliment, you don't come off like expert, hasn't nailed, pay attention to me because I'm on the mountaintop of this thing. You really right. do present like, I'm working through this and the confidence I have is that this will work through if I put the work in, which is such yeah. a better posture, uh, I would suggest in general, but specifically right now. We just don't need a whole lot of experts right now. We need a whole lot no. of you. We need a whole lot of folks who are saying, <laughs> I don't know either, but I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna put a foot in front of this foot and then I'm gonna do that again. Yeah. And I'm gonna keep doing that Thank until you. there's an obstacle and then I'm gonna figure that obstacle out and if I can work around it, then I'm gonna do that. 
what you're up to is redemptive and challenging and very, very, very helpful for the season we're in right now. And I can only imagine we'll continue to be so. So thanks for doing it. Thank you, Justin. That means a lot. If you enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll check out Justin's new book. It is what you make of it. You can hear Justin's podcast at sea anywhere that you get podcasts. You can also hear my conversation with Justin in our season two episode, What You Make of It. If you'd like to support the good things happening here at Shelter in Place, you can find information about that at shelterinplacepodcast.info, including audio testimonials of what past apprentices have to say about their experience. Right now, we're accepting applications for our fall 2021 cohort. Shelter in Place is part of the Herdat Media Network. The Shelter in Place music was created by Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions. Additional music and sound effects for this episode came from Storyblocks. Alana Herlands is our producer. Nate Davis is our creative director. Sarah Edgel is our design director. And our outstanding season two spring apprentices are Clara Smith, Samantha Skinner, Elin Tekle, Shweta Wabwe, and Michelle O'Brien. Until next time, this is Shelter in Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis. A Huda Media Production.